Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a media exchange between two human beings. This is reverberating in your current headspace. Thank you for being here. This is Brad Listy talking to you from Los Angeles, California. How are you today? Are you good? I hope you're good. Uh, How am I doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. I'm excited about the nervous breakdown. TheNervousBreakdown.com. Uh, we just launched a brand new version of the site this past week, TNB 5.0, the fifth iteration of the Nervous Breakdown in its nearly seven years of existence. So uh, it was a lot of work. There was a lot of tedium involved, as there always is with this sort of thing. You know, running a website always involves tedium. 
it's the nature of the beast. But the good news is it's all done, and I'm very pleased with the results. I'm especially pleased this time around. I think it looks good. So if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out, thenervousbreakdown.com. There's a new bookstore page. There's a new book club page. Uh, Speaking of which, you should sign up for the TNB Book Club. It's an amazing deal. It's the best deal in America. It's unbelievable. There's also a new podcasts page. It's all new, basically. And it's beautifully designed, as far as I'm concerned. And I didn't do that either. My buddy, my, my, you know, my buddy John did the design. He's the mastermind. So, otherwise, uh, what's been happening? I'm sort of boring. I haven't been sleeping a lot lately. I feel a little soft in the head. Uh, though I did sleep a little bit last night. I just go through these stretches where I have insomnia. For no particular reason. I'll just go through like a week or two. Maybe it's like mercury in retrograde. Maybe there's something going on. Uh, in the heavens. I don't know what it is, but I haven't been sleeping that great. Despite the fact that I've been exercising and taking decent care of myself. Uh, you know, it's just the way I go. And speaking of sleeping, uh, those of you who follow me on Twitter may have seen this the other day, you know, it's like a set, you know, about a week ago, maybe I was in uh, a shopping mall. I picked my daughter up from school. It was sort of uh, gray and cold and almost rainy here in Los Angeles. I didn't know what to do. I sort of had to kill some time. So I took her to this mall because it's stimulating. It was indoors, but it's, it's a terrible place over at the Beverly center here in Los Angeles. And so we go in there and, uh, it's not that crowded. There's barely anybody there, but the people who are there, uh, there was a certain like lethargy that seemed to be sweeping through the mall. I saw several people seated on couches throughout the mall asleep. Like there was an old man. I took pictures of a couple of them. You can check it out on my Twitter feed at Brad Listy. One old man had his mouth open. I thought for a moment that he might be dead. Another guy, you know, had his laptop like plugged in. He had his headphones on. He was just slumped over. I don't know. People are exhausted. It's hard to be alive. They just go to the mall. What? Like, why do you go to the mall? Just go home. Maybe they don't have homes. Though they didn't look particularly homeless. If that's a look. <laughs> um, so yeah, I did that. Boy, this is exciting. This is my life. I saw some people sleeping at the mall. Are you thrilled? Are you on the edge of your seat? Uh, what else have I done? I had to go to two child birthday parties this past weekend. That's some other exciting shit I have going on. I go to a lot of kid birthday parties. One of them was uh, at a movie theater. The parents rented out a movie theater and everybody watched Wreck-It Ralph. And well, not like the kids sort of watched Wreck-It Ralph and the parents like texted. <clears throat> and uh, and then the second one was at a person's house. You know, the, these friends of ours, their son was turning four. They had a magician at the party. And I was sitting on the floor with my daughter, and I was watching this magician do his thing. And I was gen- you know genuinely captivated. 
uh, and I sort of noticed as I was looking around that uh, I was the only adult, I think, who was truly invested. I like a good magic trick. And so, you know, I watched this magician do his thing. It's like, it's a weird, it's a weird calling to be a a magician at child birthday parties. And he was sort of a strange guy. Nice guy, as far as I can tell. But uh, his name was Gene. (laughs) Of course his name was Gene. And uh, as he was leaving the party, I, I sort of like passed by him in the kitchen and there was some eye contact and he winked at me and gave me his card. So that happened. Uh, I was going to read some tweets, but I'm not going to do that. I feel like maybe reading tweets is stale. I feel like maybe I've done too much of that. I don't want to like keep hammering that particular nail unless you guys want me to hammer it. So if you're into that and you really think it needs to be in the show, you can email me. Otherwise, maybe I'll retire that bit. So my guest today is Tom Hansen. Uh, he is the author of two books. The, the first is a memoir called American Junkie. And he's got a new novel out called This Is What We Do. Both books are available from uh, from Emergency Press. And uh, what can I say about Tom? Uh, he's lived quite a life. And frankly, he's lucky to, to still be here. And I, th- I think he himself would tell you that readily. So rather than preface it any further, let's just get going with the interview. You can hear all about it. This right here is Tom Hansen, and his new novel, once again, is called This Is What We Do. Um, I'm in Seattle, Washington, North Seattle, uh, sitting in my uh, dingy little basement apartment. Um Let's see, right behind me, there are a couple of wheelchairs and a pile of garbage about three feet high in my living room. Okay, you said wheelchairs? Yeah, wheelchairs, yeah. So what, you got a, you have a, you have a bad leg, is that right? Yeah, um, yeah, the uh, after effects, consequences of, of uh, the life I led for many, uh, many years that I wrote about in my first book. And, um, and also I took care of my mom for a long time before she died. So there's, there's wheelchairs sitting around here and I'm just a horrible housekeeper. (laughs) I've got a pile of, um, bags and cardboard boxes and, and all this stuff that I was going to use to start fires, but it's, um, it's unburnt. (laughs) Uh, so I I guess like, you know, a, a good place to start because you've led quite a life and, uh, I know a little bit about it, but I think I think it's good for us to get into like biography, you know, like, and we'll start close to the beginning. Like, are you from Seattle originally? I I am, yeah. Okay, so I, born uh, and raised, lived your whole life there. Yep, pretty much. All right, so talk about childhood. Uh, you were adopted. Yeah, um, I was adopted. Uh, I, I didn't find out about this until I was eight years old. Um, and, and I, 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 this is part of the story that that part of the American Junkie book story, um, which was um, 
the story of my uh, long career uh, selling and using heroin, and then it, it flashes back to how I got to that point. You know, with all these traumatic and big, uh, you know, um, life-changing events that happened to me. You know, where I where I kept taking wrong turns and it led me down the path. So. Yeah, I was adopted. I found I didn't find out until I was eight years old by some some neighbor punk down the street. You know, apparently the the, the neighborhood gossip had gotten around. You know, all without my knowing, right? And so I'm just hanging out in the backyard with this with this kid, and we're kicking a soccer ball around. You know, and we got into one of those those kid arguments. You know, is so is not is so is not. You know, and then he goes, "Oh yeah, well you're adopted." Right. And uh, this was one of the key themes of American Junkie, right? Because you was my how how my lack of knowing who I was and where I came from and this uh, this this identity void um, that I had. Right. Was just like kind of a vacuum and it made it really easy to. um um, I mean, if somebody knows who they are, right, they know who they are, they know where they came from, they know who their mom and dad is, they know, you know, what, what's what, then, then they have kind of a base, right, to, to base their life on. And um, I tried to, I tried to write about how, how utterly confusing and, and, um, and difficult that was for me to to not, you know, not know where I came from. So talk about your uh, like. What about your ad, uh, adoptive adoptive parents or whatever? Like the people who adopted you, what were they like? And like, do you know why they didn't tell you earlier? Because you know, my sister adopted a, a child, and that that child has known that she was adopted from you know as, as soon as she could talk practically. You know, like there's different approaches to how to handle it. So. Talk about your you know adoptive parents and and how they made that decision. Well, I just think they didn't they didn't know right um, you know and and what your your sister is that who it was yeah um, what they did is is the accepted is the generally accepted best method right as soon as the kid can understand that you need to get that information across. Um, but my parents were just salt of the earth Norwegian immigrants, you know, that kind of stoic people that that you know uh, that that just keep on plotting. You know, I mean, there could be bombs falling, you know, outside the house, and they're like, "Oh, you know, what are we having for dinner?" <laughs> you know, that's um, that's how they were, right? So I think in that context, they didn't really think it was a big deal. Um, because they were there and they were taking care of me and they did that and they did it as well as they could. Um, but from a very early age, right, even before that, even before I was eight and I found that out, I was sensing that there was something different about me from these people because they were just salt of the earth, hardworking stoic people, people that didn't think about the big questions of life, you know, totally unartistic. And, um, and, you know, I was very much the opposite. 
And then when I eventually found out who my biological parents were, the whole thing made sense because my biological father was this madman painter and uh, my biological mother was this nut job artist too. And, and um, so it all clicked in, you know, and this is something else that, that I explored in American Junkie is this nature versus nurture thing and, and how the, the pull of biology is a, is a, a, a fucking strong thing. Yeah, well, so, okay, so you find out when you're eight, and then what does that do to you as a, as a child in terms of your behavior? Like, did you start to act out after that? Did you become angry? Like, you know, how did it manifest when you were at that age? Uh, I became very shy and withdrawn. Um, did you, you, know, did you talk about it? Did you talk about it with your adoptive parents? Like, did you go inside and say, I just heard about this? You know, like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, I did. And they just kind of, you know, oh, yeah, we didn't know how to tell you. I mean, my dad was up in Alaska. He was gone. Like, he was always gone. But, but my mom was, you know, yeah, we didn't know how to tell you. And, and we don't know who your parents are. And you're here now. And who cares? You know, um, they didn't understand the, the significance of that event, you know, to me. Um, and then it was pretty much just kind of uh, forgotten about, you know. And I, I suppose if I had, if I had a, a more aggressive nature, um, I would have acted out. But I was always kind of uh, very quiet and reserved and. And even before that, and, and it just, it made me withdraw quite a bit. And so then, uh, what about like adolescence? Like when did, when did things turn for you in terms of like, uh, chemicals? No, uh, well, I got a late start actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I go to, I go to meetings and stuff and, uh, and, and I've been, you know, clean and sober since, uh, uh, since the end of, uh, you know, since the American Junkie um, book began and ended in 1999. But, um, and I hear, I'll, I hear people, you know, I hear, I don't know how many times I've heard in meetings, you know, that, oh yeah, I started swilling from dad's whiskey bottle when I was nine years old or when I was 11 years old. And, and, uh, and you know, I, I was just a late bloomer, I guess. I mean, I was so withdrawn that I didn't even really fit in with the, with the weirdos in school. And, um, so I didn't really start drinking until I was probably 16, 17. And how did it take? Uh, well, then my dad died when I was 17 and that's when I really started going off the rails. Um, I didn't like booze all that much. I mean, I would get drunk and, and, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was okay because it took me out of, you know, who I was and, uh, but, um, and I, you know, and I did it, I guess I did it enough, but, um, uh, it, 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 it didn't do, it didn't do the trick for me, you know? So I guess the pot and the booze, um, started when I was like 17, uh, and then that went, went on and then I, 
started trying the harder stuff probably when I was 18, 19. So may I, may I ask how your father died? Uh, yeah, he um, uh, died on a fishing boat accident in Alaska. Oh, God. You always hear how dangerous those things are, you know? Like, <laughs> I have friends who've gone up there to, like, work in the canneries, but, like, that's a really dangerous job. So he was, he was that was what he did? He worked on those fishing boats? Yeah, well, he was a, um, uh, he was a uh, carpenter, actually, and he built houses um, at first in the 60s when I was a little kid. And, uh. But he had a drinking problem, too, and he eventually, um, you know, started spending too much time in the bar and not enough time at work, and his uh, construction company went ticks up probably late 60s, and then uh, he hooked up with his uh, Norwegian friends, and, uh, you know, there's kind of a Norwegian immigrant community around here. Uh, it's not as big as it used to be, but, and a lot of them, you know, go on fishing boats in Alaska and own fishing boats. And so he started doing that and, and it was before, um, I mean, yeah, it's a dangerous job, but it's, but, but, uh, it's a lot less dangerous than it used to be. I think it was sometime in the eighties, they, um, the Coast Guard or the government or somebody put in all these safety regulations, right? Because all these boats were crashing and sinking all over the place. And uh, so it's a lot safer than it used to be. But yeah, he was in five boat wrecks before the last one. And, you know, these horrific stories about the boat sinking and drifting in a life raft and, you know, pushing up on some some island in the middle of the Bering Sea and having to stay there for three days with an orange to eat until the Coast Guard comes along. And, uh, yeah, on the last one, the boat sank. Uh, they got into the life raft. Um, and my dad apparently, I mean, he was getting up in years at that time because I was adopted when they were kind of old. Uh, so I think he was like 55 or 56 or something. And, uh, um, I don't know. He just couldn't take it anymore and had a heart attack or a stroke or something and just teeled over. Oh God. That's awful. Well, yeah, no, like I, uh, I had a buddy who was going to do that. Like he had this big plan that he was going to go up to Alaska and work on one of these boats and, you know, you make a bunch of money. You can get paid pretty well. That's sort of the lure of it. But, um, you know, he went first, I want to say, to not Seattle, but some somewhere on the Washington coast. I forget the name of the town, but he had some sort of connection through a friend of a friend, and he was going to go meet up with these guys who were going to go up there, and he was going to kind of tag along with them. And he got there, and all these guys were, like, super cracked out on meth. And apparently uh-huh. like, that culture, like the people who work on those boats, or a lot of the people who work on those boats are kind of staying alert and staying awake because you have to work really hard and do insane hours and it's physical labor. So a lot of these guys are strung out on speed. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. And, um, that it didn't used to be the case. Uh, but I think, um, uh, I mean, 
I guess this, I guess you could say this about numerous different careers, but um, you know, because because of the way the economic landscape has changed. But um, but when my dad was doing it, you know, in like the late '60s through the '70s, um, you know, mostly as far as I know, it was you know. Uh, men that had families, you know, they'd go up there and they'd work and they'd make good money and they'd come back and they'd, uh, they'd live their lives. And then, uh, and then at some point it turned, you know, and these people, these guys started doing that job, going up there, getting a whole, you know, working for three months, six months, getting a huge paycheck and coming back and blowing it in three weeks in Vegas and stuff. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, you know. I, I, speaking of Vegas, I've seen that happen so many. You, you you can always tell it's the guy who's there, with, like with his paycheck on Friday night. It's the most depressing thing ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, what's that got to feel like, man? When when it's coming, it's all gone. Jesus, yeah. oh, it's the worst. I, but Las Vegas. I had like a window of time in my life when Las Vegas seemed really fun and interesting. When I was like in my early twenties, and now I can't even barely go there. I, you know. I'm sure there are redeeming qualities. So if you're in Las Vegas listening, I don't mean to bag on it. I'm just saying that, like my experience of the casino, the, the casino life, you know, like that's that's my experience of Vegas, and I know that's just a fraction of the greater thing. But man, casinos are depressing. They really are. Yeah, I, well, I've I've never really I've never even been to Vegas actually. Um, it's it's worth seeing. I mean, you know, it's like it's it's kind of like one of those cities. Like I always say. There are very few cities in America that have dis- like a distinct character that differentiates them, you know, one from the other. Because I, you know, I come from the Midwest, and a lot of those cities seem sort of interchangeable. Uh, you know, I, I was raised in Indianapolis and Milwaukee, and you know, they do have their little identifiers. But a lot of them, uh, there's a lot of crossover, and I feel like New Orleans has a real cultural identity. Uh, New York has a cultural, you know, and I think Las Vegas, for better or worse, has its own identity. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we've got a lot of casinos around here, too, and it's just, uh, I, and the, the thing about Vegas is it's never really interested me because gambling doesn't interest me in the slightest. Well, I was going to say, because, you, you know, you have, uh, you know, you, you struggled with addiction, but gambling was never part of it. No, never. So, okay, so then uh, speaking of addiction, you know, we were talking about, you know, the the sort of timeline of your life, and you were saying that, after your father's death, 17, 18 years old, you really start to go off the rails. Like, uh, can you talk a bit about your trajectory and what happened during those years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that's, I left home. I moved to, cause I lived, uh, 20 miles north of Seattle. You know, me and my mom and dad lived out there. Um, and, um, uh, what year is this? Like, when is this? 77. 77. Okay. 77 when my dad died. So we're talking like 79, 80 here. Um, yeah, I moved to Seattle. I started playing uh, some punk rock bands. Um, what instrument? Guitar. And uh, I was a halfway decent, uh, halfway decent guitar player. Um, you know, the, the thing that, uh, the thing that, um, that kept me back was um, I couldn't write a song for shit. 
Really? You know, like, yeah, I could, I could play, I could play up the storm, but, but uh, there was something about the uh, songwriting process that just, I, I just couldn't figure it out. Um, so I got in these bands, and you know, and, and the music would always be kind of mediocre, and and uh, and I would always, uh, and by this time I had started, you know, doing drugs too, and. What, what, which drugs? Like, what was the, what was the, you know, it's, it's, it's weed, it's alcohol, and then where does it go from there? Um, let's see, I think I, I, uh, snorted coke a couple of times, not very much. Wasn't all that impressed with it. Uh, there was a period there where I, I was taking MDA quite a bit. What, ecstasy? Um, yeah, it was before they actually called it ecstasy. You know, it was like everybody just called it MDA back then. It was, and it was legal. Uh-huh. It was. I remember it was like a big. I mean, I've, I've read up on the history of it. Like that was actually like it was like a legal uh, club drug in the early '80s, and like it was huge in Texas. <laughs> uh, huh. Yeah, like there's like if you if you look at the history of ecstasy, there was a period when it was legal, and uh, one of the biggest markets where it really exploded was in Dallas, Texas, which always strikes me as being somewhat funny. But yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah. So anyway, I was I, I did. Um, I, I there was a period there where I just kind of rolled through all the you know that smoking quaaludes on top of pot. Um, you know, when you could still get quaaludes and, and, uh, what, what was a quaalude? Quaaludes just like a, uh, a downer. It's like a painkiller. Like what the hell is a quaalude? Yeah. You know what? I don't even really know, man. All I know is that you would crumble it up on top of some pot in a pipe and it would zonk your ass out good. <laughs> was it like, is it like, <laughs> is it an opiate based thing? Yeah, I, I, <sighs> I don't know. I think so. I mean, I think this was around the time they were starting to outlaw it here, but there were people were bringing them in from Mexico because you could get them over the counter. And, uh, you know, I don't even know if it's an opiate-based drug or not. Probably not. I think it's just a downer, just a, some form of downer. But, I mean, I, I remember one time I, I was downtown. It was after a show. And I got in my car with somebody, and we smoked quaaludes on top of the pot, and and I I I just went out, and I woke up like the next day, and like eleven o'clock in the morning, sitting in my car, Jesus, downtown, Jesus. <laughs> um, so there was a short period of that, but the uh, and then, God, you know. I tried to pinpoint this in the book, too, in, in American Junkie, um, you know, when it was the first time I, I took opiates, and I, I I don't even remember. I remember what it was, right? We were taking um, Percodans or Percocets and drinking beer, and I just remember feeling really good, and... Um, so that led very quickly to um, to um, shooting shooting heroin, and you know, once I found that, you know, that was my thing. That was what I'd been looking for um, in the booze and everything else. 
Um, and you don't remember the first time you shot heroin? You don't remember it, like the specifics? No, no. Um, this was the, this was one of the problems I faced when I was writing American Junkie. Is I have a really bad memory, right? So I had to, you know, I had to track down hundreds of people and talk to them about about what happened back then, you know, because I was also searching for this accuracy. And you know the thing about, I mean, anybody that's written a memoir knows that you can hear you can hear the same event from two different people and get two totally different stories from the past because people remember things differently. Um, you know, so I, I, um, I had to interview, you know, countless people about, you know, what happened in the past and, and, uh, you know, of course, I, nobody was following me around the whole time. So I had to, um, you know, there are parts where it's, it's solely based on my memories, you know, which are, which are um, subject to my interpretation. But I wrote a little foreword to the book, you know, about, about uh, memory and memories and how they change and how I had done my best to, uh, to be accurate and objective about things. And, and, but, but yeah, the heroin was, was, was the thing, uh, that I'd been looking for. Um, and, and the, the other thing I tried to sort of show, um, in American Junkie is, is how quickly this progression went, Right. Or, or how effortlessly this progression went, right? Like there was never anything about like, oh, I'm doing cocaine. Maybe that's a bad idea. You know, it's supposed to be bad or something. There was never any thought about stopping, right? Or like I might get in over my head or this might be a bad idea or uh, this might ruin my future. There was, there was none of this thought because I had reached this point already where I just didn't care, where uh, the world had become so depressing and confusing and mostly painful um, that uh, there, were, there, was, there was no safety barrier. You know, I was willing to go to any lengths um, to find something that would make the world make sense. And that's what heroin did for me. And did you have, I mean, you were, you know, you, you're, you're a bit older than I am, so you didn't get like the 1980s, just say no education. You know, that was part of everybody. I think, uh, everybody who came of age in that era went through all that. So did you have like people in your ear, your parent, your parents or, you know, adults in your life when you were a kid telling you to be careful with this stuff? Did you have any kind of, you know, foundation of that sort, or were you just kind of going in uh, blind and figuring it out for yourself? Well, no. Um, well, and, and no, I didn't have anybody. Um, the only family I had was my mom, and she was, um, you know, uh, the sweetest uh, woman in the world, but. Um, she was, uh, she could never say no. She was very deferential, uh, towards men. And, um, you know, like she could never tell my dad to stop drinking and, and all through my using, um, 
you know, she would say things like, you know, when are you going to stop doing that dope, you know? But that was as far as it went, right? There was never any, like, uh, you have to stop or I'm not going to see you. And I mean, she even hid money for me when I was selling dope, you know? So she knew she knew all about it. She knew that you were doing hair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was. I felt that I owed it to her to, um, uh, you know. And besides, it was pretty obvious with me, you know, that that I was into something, and and I just don't. Uh, I, I just I don't believe in in um, lying to people that you're close with, no matter what, you know, or trying to pull the wool over their eyes and. And, uh, so yeah, no, I didn't have anybody, um, well, yeah, I mean, I had, you know, like a girlfriend at the time that, you know, like, you know, you need to stop doing that and, and, but, you know, she was boozing it up and snorting coke and stuff and I'm like, hey, you got your thing, I got mine, shut up. I was going to say, not exactly the voice of authority. Um, yeah. so, okay. So at what point does the, does the, does the music and playing in band stop? Like how, like at what point did you kind of just go full time into heroin and dealing and using? Um, uh, let's see. It was probably somewhere between 84 and probably somewhere between 83, 84, 85, um, and I continued actually playing in 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 bands uh off and on until like ninety but um, but it always took a back seat to the to the drug business uh you know because once i once I found heroin um as my drug of choice, right the one that made everything work, then I kind of just stumbled into uh, selling it right around, um, 83, 84, 85. And I found out that I was really good at it. What made you good? Um, well, um, I was able to, for the most part, avoid, uh, the, the disasters that I saw going on around me with the other dealers, right? I mean, everybody that, uh, I mean, pretty much, well, I think a good, good deal of people that get, uh, get mixed up into that, um, drug, you know, have grand ideas about selling it to support their habit and making a bunch of money, but very few can pull it off. Um, for whatever reason, they, they, they're not careful enough. They're, uh, you know, they make a bunch of money and blow it on Coke and that blows their whole business to hell. Um, you know, they can't, uh, they can't get up and do what they need to do every day. There's a thousand reasons and, 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 uh, for some reason, um, I could just do it. And and I wanted to do it too because I I um, 
because it was important to me, right? And I realized that it was important to me. And if I could do this and do it well, then I wouldn't ever have to worry about going without. You wouldn't have, so to, you wouldn't just, have to worry about what? About going without, going about not having any. Right. Plus you were making, that were you the, make, you're making some good money too, right? Uh, for a time, yeah, for a time there, I was running hard from like 10 in the morning till 10 at night. Uh, and, and during that period, which lasted probably a couple of years, um, I was pulling in like a, a, a grand a day on top of everything. And so how do you, like, I mean, cause I've never done heroin, so... Like you, you are you using all day long, or is it the kind of thing where like you go to work selling heroin all day, and then at the end of the day you sort of kick back and, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like in the more traditional work a day mode, or is it something that you know you could be functional while under the influence? Oh yeah, totally functional. Yeah. See, by this time I had a pretty pretty darn big habit, right? So once you get a, once you get a big habit, then then you're not getting knocked on your ass by your shots anymore. You know, they're pretty much just straightening straightening you out and making it so you can think clearly and function, right? So I'd get up in the morning, do a big do a big shot, you know, get my head together, and then um, you know, go out with my car, run around, and make deliveries all day. And then at the end of the night, I'd get do another big shot, right? But I wasn't even getting loaded, you know, anymore by this time because once you get past a certain point, um, you know, it becomes like almost impossible to overdose and and uh, or, or even get, you know, that kind of high, right? Whereas you're like nodding out and stuff. So, um, so yeah, I would. Uh, you know, I'd get up, I'd do something, I'd go run around all day, you know, be on the phone, stopping at pay phones, you know. There weren't no cell phones at this time, so it was just beepers, right? I had a beeper, uh, you know, calling people back, um, meeting them, meeting my guy, getting more. There's a, there's a, uh, uh, there's a, a great scene that, um, one of the chapters of uh, American Junkie, one of my favorite ones, that um, is uh, is when I'm I'm in the hospital, right? I've been shooting up in my legs. I've got this huge open wound on the side of my calf, which is part of what screwed up my leg. Yeah, like what happened and, there? What happened there? Talk about that. <laughs> all right. Well. Um, Probably around uh, like when I first started using, you know, I had uh, I had I had these huge veins, right? You know, it was just it was a piece of cake to shoot up. I didn't even have to tie off my arm with a belt or anything. You know, if I had a syringe full of dope, I could get it in and out of my arm in probably five seconds. And um, at some point there in the late 80s, um, my veins just collapsed. Um, I never investigated uh, medically why this sort of thing happens. I just know it happens. It happens to all junkies. Their, their veins kind of go away. Um, uh, it's some kind of response to being endlessly poked or something. They, 
they kind of dry up and go deeper, right? They go deeper under your skin to get away from being poked all the time. <laughs> or, you know, or your blood kind of, uh, your your circulation system kind of changes where instead of your, your blood flowing through your, these veins on the surface of your arm, it just stops going there and, and instead runs into these deeper veins that, that are deeper under the surface of your skin. Anyway, so they went away. And then, you know, you're, you're faced with the alternative of either, uh, you know, smoking it or snorting it, which are both kind of useless once you've shot up. It's, it just doesn't work anymore. Uh, or, you know, um, uh, you can, you know, go to all these fantastic lengths to try and find a vein, right? Like, like I knew people that would... Uh, fill up the bathtub with scalding hot water and soak in the bath for an hour and, you know, and sit in there and poke themselves 50 times. And, uh, you know, or you could just uh, jam it into your muscle, you know, jam it into your leg, into your muscle and, and um, you know, shoot it in there. It doesn't hit you. It doesn't affect you the same way as shooting up in a vein. Uh, it hits you slower, you know, over a period of minutes instead of a period of seconds. Um, but that's what I started doing. And then what happened is, um, and, and it happens a lot up here in, in Seattle because, uh, we get this, you know, we get this black tar heroin from Mexico that's all filled with who, who the hell knows what's in it, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's, I don't know what the hell it's cut with or, you know, why it's black tar instead of white powder. Um, but that's what we get here, you know, and it's filled with these impurities, right? So um, when you inject it into your muscle like that, um, first of all, it's, you know, it's like shooting yourself up with boiling hot water, right? So it kind of, torches that area and, and then you've got all the chemicals and all the cut and it ends up killing, you know, a bunch of your cells around there where you shot it up. So I was doing that and then you get like a little black spot, you know, on your leg where the, where the, uh, where the flesh was starting to die kind of, um, you know, and then generally what people do is they, oh, you know, that's bad news. I'll go shoot up somewhere else. And you have this like revolving thing where you're moving all around your body, shooting up to avoid uh, the same bad spots. Right. But I discovered that if I kept up, kept shooting in the same spot, that I was starting to feel the shots almost as if I was shooting up in vain still. I never found out the, uh, the, 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 the exact reason why this is, but I speculate that it's because because the the because of all the damage there, you've got all these like blood vessels and capillaries and trying to repair that area. You still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, I discovered that you know I I was feeling the shots when I just kept shooting it up into the same spot, and so I just kept doing that. Uh, you know, of course, it kept killing off this flesh, right? And then I'd end up with this 
freaking hole in the side of my leg and, and, uh, you know, but I didn't care and I kept going and, um, eventually I'd end up with, oh, you know, these holes in my body that were like the size of a fist. Jesus. You mean like an actual hole, like a gaping wound? Yeah. Ugh. Were you dis? Yeah. Were you disinfecting and like, like bandaging or no? Uh, yeah, sort of. You know, I was sticking like wads of paper towels in there, and, and that's about it. You know, and then so I did that. Uh, let's see, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven huge dents in my body where that where where that happened. Like all over your body, like legs, arms, like where are they? Where are they at? Like just all over. I I got one on the side of each calf, uh, one on one on each butt, butt cheek, uh, two on one arm and one on the other arm. And so, do these things affect your ability to like move around or do stuff? I mean, do, is it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, uh, that's how my leg. That's how my my walk got fucked up. Um, the, um, uh, I, I was doing it in my, on my butt cheek. Right. You know, and it was a huge hole there. Right. I mean, all the way down to the bone. Right. I mean, I could reach into this hole and feel my hip joint. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, it got the uh, it got the bone infected, right? And basically, my hip joint melted down. This is this is what I go. This is what go, what I go through in American Junkie when I finally quit and end up in the hospital. And they're talking about cutting my leg off, you know, because my hip is all infected and the bones just melted down. The joints just mush. And um, and, uh, so, uh, so yeah, yeah. And my arm, um, doesn't work right because, uh, one of the holes is on my forearm, right? And this is another scene where I'm, uh, in American Chunky where I'm, I've been shooting up in this forearm for a long time and I, I go out to drive the car and I feel something give in my arm, right? And one of the bones in my arm is broken because it's just melted through. Good God, man! That's un- it's an unbelievable. It's unbelievable uh, how powerful <laughs> heroin addiction is. You know, to put yourself through yeah. that. Yeah, that's just incredible. Yeah, well, you know, and this is one of the reasons I went through a little bit of a crisis period when I was halfway through um, uh, when I was halfway through writing American Junkie. I kind of went through this. You know, uh, the James Fry book had just been exposed as being crap. And and I was like, you know, I, I had this period where I wasn't sure I wanted to finish the project. I, I was like, do we really need another one of these drug books? You know, what? What was this, 2005? What, Is this when you were in Paris or no? No, this was probably... 2007, I think, was when Fry got busted. Oh, okay, yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, um, 
I, I just I had some doubts there that I wanted to finish the book and, and go through with it. And, you know, like, I mean, I've got to have a, I've got to have a clear vision and a drive when I write my books. I've got to, um, um, I have this strange methodology that I use where I look around me at other books and, uh, and I see things that, and, and if it's something I've seen before or it's something that I don't like, then I decide, okay, I'm not doing that. I go in the other direction. And, and through a process of elimination, I finally end up with finding out what it is that I do want to do. And then I have to evaluate if it's a good enough reason. And anyway, I, I, I came to the point that, that yeah, I, I thought that my take on, um, my take on addiction was, uh, was interesting and different and, um, and that my story was more extreme than anything I'd ever read. Uh, so, you know, for that, for that reason, um, I thought it was a, a worthy, a worthy project, right. To show that, yeah, you can, you can really, you can really, uh, you can really be lost, you know, and find your way back. I so, mean, you can really be lost. So how bad, like, like, how crazy did it get? Like, what was kind of the, the nadir, you know? Like, where, where, can you point to a moment or a couple of moments that were, like, you know, profoundly insane? <laughs> you know, where when you look back at it, you're like, I can't believe I survived, or, you know, how many of those times uh, were there? Is there anything that, like, was really, like, spectacularly nuts when you, when you look back on it? No. No. Um, it, it, Nothing, nothing that, um, you know, nothing that, that stands out really. It, it's more the overall, um, thing, you know, and, and, uh, American Junkie opens with the very last day of my using, uh, the day that I called the aid car and didn't put the phone down and didn't hang up. And, um, what's the aid car? Just like, I need help. Come over here. And yeah. Yeah. Because I was, um, I mean, I'm six foot one, uh, and I've always been pretty thin, but at the end of my using, I hadn't been able to get out of bed for three weeks. Um, there was like, uh, you know, bottles of two liter bottles of piss and rigs and, and, and shit. Uh, everywhere. I'd been having an ex-girlfriend of mine run the drug business for me and bring me dope and money every day. Um, and yeah, I, I'm six foot one. My normal weight is like 170. I weigh like 110 pounds. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And I hadn't been able to get out of bed in three weeks. You know, I had these freaking, uh, huge wounds in my, you know, in my butt, um, and, uh, you know, and it, it was bad, you know, it was, uh, and I had tried to pick up that phone and call the aid car probably 20 times, right, but I had always hung up, and, uh, I don't know what made me not hang up that last day, um, 
you know, but they came and they're like, wow, you know, and wrapped me up in a blanket and carried me downstairs and, and, uh, and out to the hospital. And I was in the hospital for six months, three months before I even got back on my feet. And, um, what was, what was withdrawal like? I mean, that's gotta be a pretty severe withdrawal. No, you know what? It wasn't that bad because my habit was so bad that they had to put me on methadone. Ah, okay. Um, uh, so it wasn't, I was in intensive care for a few days and lapsed into a coma for a couple of days. Jeez. Um, you know, it was, uh, uh, but yeah, but there weren't any, um, there weren't any like super crazy, um, things that, that happened, you know, aside from there, there were a few, Aside from these gaping wounds in your body. <laughs> yeah, you know, and but, that was just kind of a, you know, I, I, uh, I think this is, this is why I was so good at, at selling dope too. And why I was so, um, uh, committed to it, you know, because I, I, uh, there was some point where I just decided that, you know what, this is, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's like, um, it's my life's work. Cause I mean, is that really what you, like how you approached it? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, and, and this is what, this is one of the things I write about is, is, you know, even through all this, this, even through playing music, right? I still didn't find any identity for myself playing playing music, right? I mean, I played I played music, and I was an okay guitar player, but I never received any validation for that, right? There was never any money, you know. There was never, you know, and maybe that speaks to a weakness in my character that I was always looking for outside validation somehow, but. Uh, you know, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to be good at something that, that seemed like it was important. Right. And that's what I found with selling dope, right. Was that I was needed. Right. Well, I was going to say heroin in Seattle, you know, like that's, that's a, uh, you know, the, the two, like in my, in my mind anyway, seem to go hand in hand, like especially in the music scene, like you were crossing paths with a lot of like notable musicians who were into heroin in Seattle, correct? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Like the Kurt Co was it Kurt Cobain and then um I'm forgetting Kurt Lang, Mark Lanigan. So did were you friends with these guys or were they just customers? Uh I was uh kind of friends with Lane and and uh pretty friendly with Mark Lanigan. Uh Kurt, um no, not so much. Um but, uh, what was he, I mean, was he just not, was he hard to get to know or not friendly or? Well, by the time I was selling to him, he was, um, he had a lot going on, right? I mean, he, you know, he had Nirvana was always happening, uh, you know, and then Courtney and, and the kid and, um, you know, it's hard to, 
I never sat down at his place and hung out and shot the shit with him like I did with the other guys. Um, uh, and I think it was just, I mean, that can be kind of a strange, uh, a strange thing. I kind of got the feeling when I met him and, and sold drugs to him that he, he kind of, you know, he kind of wished that his life would slow down and that we could sit down and hang out and just whatever. But, um, you know, he, he was, it seemed to me like he was feeling a lot of pressure from everything. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that was, I mean, that's a rare experience that he went through with that kind of fame and that kind of meteoric rise. And, you know, it's hard to even fathom what it must have been like, especially if you're, you know, carrying around that kind of addiction and then you've got a kid. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And you're married to Courtney, you know, who was probably, <laughs> she's probably a handful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I met her a few times, uh, after he died too. And I mean, I saw her when I would see him and, um, was she doing it? Was she using too or no? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not so sure. Um, actually when I was seeing him, I don't know that for sure, but I did end up seeing her, um, you know, for business reasons after Kurt was gone a few times. And, uh, I don't know. I can't, uh, speak for anybody else. All I know is what I saw and she was, seemed totally normal and cool and not psycho and, you know, just no. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, 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 okay. So you kick in 99, right? Yeah. Okay. So, and you're in the hospital for six months, uh, you know, that's an extended recovery, I, I think, by rehab standards. And then like, it was right around this time that you met your biological mother, correct? No, no. That happened um, after I turned 21. Oh, that did. Okay. Okay. I have it wrong. Yeah. Then. Okay. So you that happened earlier in your life, and then you kick heroin. Um, but regardless, I'm interested to know about that relationship. Like, Do you have or did you have an ongoing relationship with your birth mother? And, and I guess your, your um, biological father had passed away before you got a chance to meet him. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he drank himself to death in the early 80s. Um, what was his name? Uh, Jack Stangle. Okay. And he was a painter. Yeah, he was a fairly well-known painter in Seattle in the 50s and 60s. Uh, part of this thing called the Northwest School, which was like five or six painters that kind of uh, became a big deal in Seattle. And, and um, he's got a, uh, um, a, a scholarship in his name down at Cornish College of the Arts. And yeah, it was kind of a big deal, but he drank himself to death. Um, before before I could meet him, uh, I met my biological mom, um, and uh, she seemed really cool at first, and gave me a Volkswagen van, and and we would see each other every now and then. 
Um, but when I got mixed up in the heroin, she kind of uh, wrote me off again. She said she didn't want anything to do with me again. Uh, and so then I didn't, I haven't seen her since, I haven't seen her since the eighties. Uh, we reconnected, um, uh, we reconnected a few years back again over the email and, uh, this is after, uh, this is after you had, had, had stopped using. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, I think it was shortly after I stopped using, we started talking on the email again, um, but I didn't see her. Uh, then American Junkie came out in 2010, and she didn't like how I portrayed her in the memoir, and so we're not talking and talking again. Uh, so that happened. That's always a pit. It's, a, it's always a danger with memoir, I guess, you know, when you're writing about yeah. family no, no. She is a little bit, um, you know, uh, uh, she's reading things into the memoir that nobody else is seeing. Um, I guess that's the danger, you know, but um, I made a concerted effort, you know, with the memoir to not to to not be one of those things where it's like a gossip thing or digging up dirt about famous people or trashing people in your family. And it was never about any of that. Um, but she seems to think that it is somehow. And I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like a, I think especially when people are in the book or they're close to you or they're related, it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot more intense to read it and it's obviously subjective and, like you say, people yeah. see people see things that you know the average reader isn't even coming close to seeing. Yeah, well, everybody's name in the book has been changed, um, except for uh, I talked to Dylan Carlson, one of Kurt's good friends, and I talked to Mark Lanigan, and um, and they wanted to see. Uh, see the chapters that they were in and to make sure that it would be cool and I showed it to them and they were fine with it and so I kept their names the same but aside from that everybody including my biological mom um, is uh, is not you know not named so so let me ask you let me ask you about writing because you know you played music you're selling heroin you're using heroin you're going through this like you know extended ordeal uh with addiction at what point did uh, like a literary pursuit become something that seemed uh realistic to you was this post uh rehab or was it something that you started before you know you kicked in 99 yeah, no, I had, I had, it's, it was after I got clean. Um, I quit in 99, uh, went to live with my mom in Edmonds. I had no clue, no freaking clue, you know, what, what, what I was going to do. Right. You know, it was as if I'd been living in, in, you know, solitary in some prison for 20 years or something. Uh, you know, the world had moved on and I was still in 1982, you know. Um, I had no clue what the heck I was going to do. Um, 
and uh, you know, I I guess I by default, you know, I ended up um, signing up for community college, you know, because I didn't know what the heck else to do. Figured I'm better learn how to do something. Did you have any money saved up from all these years? You know, like what, what? How did you? I mean, I know you were living with your mom, but I mean, how did you like eat? You know. Oh, uh, they had set me up with a disability check when I was in the hospital. You know, state disability check. So I was getting by on that, and uh, and I was able to get some grants and some loans and. And, uh, so I started going to school and, um, uh, you know, just bumbling around the community college and, uh, and, uh, ended up in a writing course, uh, where I think I, you know, wrote the first germs of, of chapters that would become chapters of American Junkie. Hmm. And got some encouragement and, and, uh, you know, had a couple of good teachers that said, you know, you could, you could do this if you wanted to. And so what about the transition to fiction with your, you know, your, your next book? Like after writing a memoir and having to go through all the research processes and having to kind of, you know, dredge through, uh, your memories to, to put the thing together, was it a relief to be able to make stuff up? <laughs> And not be beholden to the to the facts. Um, no, not a relief. It was just a different. It was just a different kind of ordeal or a different kind of work. Um, um, I wanted to. Uh, I I didn't want to be. I knew I didn't want to be one of those uh, one of those writers like you know Marguerite Duras who writes the same book 12 times over. Um, so I, I, all I knew is that I wanted to do something that was very different, right? Because American Junkie, one of the things that propels the story is the, is, is the flashbacks, right? You know, it starts off and you see how bad this guy is. And then, and then, and then that story progresses along with these constant flashbacks that show the progression of how he got there. And that's a very compelling, you know, thing. And if you don't do it right, you know, the use of flashbacks can be kind of gimmicky, you know, in a narrative tension kind of way. Um, but I wanted to do, I wanted to do the complete opposite. I wanted to write a story that was chronological from start to finish. Uh, no flashbacks. I actually argued with my editor about this a few times because he wanted me to start in the middle and flashback and then go on and, you know, and that works great for hooking readers, but I wanted to do something, uh, I wanted to just go in the other direction and do something that was um, chronological from start to finish. So, you know, I had to learn all these new methods for, you know, a, a new way of, of creating narrative tension and and uh, generally I think it's pretty successful. I mean... Uh, to me, I mean, and that's what matters. Uh, I think I did what I wanted to do. Um, I don't think people are really getting the novel yet, quite like they got the memoir. Um, but that happens, you know. I mean, 
Joseph Heller, you wrote Catch-22, you know, it came out in, like, what, 61 or whatever? And it wasn't a big deal until, like, 1971. Yeah, I mean, yeah, books, you know, what's the story that I always tell myself or I always tell other people is that uh, I want to say Kurt Vonnegut wrote Cat's Cradle, which was his third book, and the first year it was published, it sold 500 copies. So... (laughs) You know, yep. these things can take some time to catch on and then circumstances can intervene. A book can get made into a movie or, you know, there's all different ways that it can happen. But sometimes it just yeah. takes, well, takes a while. You know, while. and writers are, are, you know, of all the artistic disciplines more prescient than than uh, than the others. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, if take that example again, Catch-22, right? It's kind of this, it's a story about World War II and, and, but it's kind of written in this sort of, you know, hippie-ish kind of tone um, before the, the hippie period was even there. Right. And I mean, that's like, uh, that's like Kerouac too. I mean, he sort of presaged a lot of that, even though he didn't want much to do with the actual thing, you know, those books sort of, I, I feel like, uh, well, I don't know. Catch twenty two. It almost feels like Catch twenty two spoke to Vietnam era war protesters. <laughs> um, yes, more so yes. than it, more so than it did to World War two veterans. I mean, that, maybe I'm misreading it, but that's the way it seems to me. You know, right? Yeah, and there weren't even any war war protesters, Vietnam War protesters, when it came out. You know, so he kind of had a feel that said that, you know, something was going to happen there, you know, but it didn't happen yet. You know, but I I don't know that that may be what's happening um, uh, with my novel because it's, uh, uh, you know, and and then again, you know, I don't know what people were expecting uh, after American Junkie, if they were expecting me to write, you know, a sequel to that that's all, you know, happiness and sunshine. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, that, first of all, that was never going to happen. And, and um, uh, I, th- I think people are having difficulties with it just because they're so programmed to... Uh, to look for, um, you know, the characters and the stories we, we read about to, uh, they, 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 you know, they, they still want the men to be heroic in a way, and they still want the women to be, uh, victims. And, uh, I reject both of those ideas in, in, uh, in the novel. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I was just going, you know, with the, it was an interesting how the novel unfolded because um, uh, I was reading something about Johnny Everson about how he's got, you know, how he, he works with outlines and, and you know, has a big white chalkboard, you know, with post-its and lines and shit all over it. And... and um, and I, I tend to work more organically. I tend to, uh, you know, by this process of elimination of looking around at what I don't want to do, I finally arrive down at what I do want to do, or at least kind of a core idea of what I do want to do. 
And then I kind of just sort of incubate that idea for a while, you know, and then I just kind of let it loose and, and follow it wherever it goes. And uh, that's what happened with the novel. And, and, and I really, I really like um, that method. I think it, it, it's, uh, it feels more natural to me, more organic to, um, to, to sort of find some magic and follow it around rather than create a box and put the magic inside it. Yeah, I mean, I always say I, I wish I could outline. I can't. You know, like, I think some people can do that, and then other people, uh, and it sounds like you're one of them, have to kind of work more intuitively and sort of stumble through the dark and figure it out page by page, you know. But yeah, it seems like life would be easier if I could just outline the damn thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I asked you earlier really briefly, and I never got, uh, we never got around to talking about it. So I want to make sure before I let you go that I ask you about this. But when I was prepping uh, for our conversation, I read some bit from a previous interview, I think, where you said you were in Paris in 2005 and you were undergoing a kind of crisis. And I'm curious, right. I'm curious to know, like, what was the crisis in Paris and why were you there? <laughs> oh, uh, well, I was there because, um, because I had a freaking great AA sponsor for a while who, who, was, who, was, uh, who worked for some pharmaceutical corporation and uh, made shit piles of money and um, uh, and she um, I was meeting with her one week and she said yeah, you need uh, you need a vacation you've been taking care of your mom and going to school and working your ass off and so pick somewhere to go and I'll pay so uh, I picked Paris and she sent me to Paris and uh, the crisis, that might have been overspoken a little bit. Um, uh, it wasn't so much of a crisis as just, um, um, in fact, it wasn't really a crisis at all. I was just wandering, I wandered around the city by myself. Oh, that's, I mean, yeah, and, that uh, sounds nice. By, by the way, you're, you're an AA sponsor, Alec. It makes me want to join AA. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good sponsor, man. Free vacation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, she's got to fly all over the world for her job, right? So she racks up these air miles, you oh. know, that she can't use, and so she gives them away. Sure, sure. Uh, and then you mentioned that you had been taking care of your mother. Now is she is she's no longer with us. Yeah, that, uh, she died in June of eleven. Oh, I'm sorry. And this, yeah. is, this is your adopt, adopted mother, correct? Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. Um, what, yeah, what? well, you know, she was 89. So uh, she lived a good long life, and the end wasn't, uh, you know, terribly horrific with a lot of suffering or anything. So um, That's about as good as you can ask for, you know, in this life. Yeah. <laughs> It's her time. Um, I'm really grateful that I managed to get myself straightened out and take care of her at the end. And, um, you know, so that she didn't have to die worrying about me that I'm still out ripping and running or whatever. And, and um, yeah, that's what happens. 
Well, Tom, it's been uh, it's been great talking with you, man. I'm, I congratulate you on on the new book and uh, also on on the memoir. You know, and, and just and I congratulate you on being uh, clean and sober and getting books done. You know, that's a huge feat considering where you were. You know, to and and where you are now. So, um, you know, I wish you all the best, and I thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, man. All right, you guys, there you have it. That is Tom Hansen. Go get American Junkie. Go get the new novel. It's called This Is What We Do. Both books are available from Emergency Press. You can find Tom online at tom-hansen.com. He's on the Facebook, I believe, and you can find him on Twitter at Tom Hansen Author. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to go rate and review this program over at iTunes. That's a big deal. That really helps if you have the time. It only takes a couple of minutes, so please do that if you can. Uh, also, go get the app if you haven't done that already, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this show. And uh, I think that's it. Check out thenervousbreakdown.com. It looks good. Bookmark it. Make it a part of your daily procrastination ritual. I would appreciate that. Please remember that Marguerite Dura died on March 3rd, 1996, and that Abner Doubleday was a Union general during the Civil War. That is all for now. Thank you for listening, folks. I, I appreciate it greatly. And I'll be back soon on Sunday with another program just for you. In the meantime, uh, please remember to not forget to keep your train of thought when you're trying to remember what to say, when you are trying to figure out how to end things. (laughs) 